the Oncozine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. In this episode of the Oncozine Brief, we're talking with Dr. David Epstein. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Hoffland, here with Sonia Portillo. Dr. Epstein is the executive chairman of Rubius Therapeutics, a company that is pioneering novel red cell therapeutics, or RCTs, which they've nicknamed Superblood, as a new class of medicines to address a wide array of diseases. These novel drugs have leading applications in cancer, rare and autoimmune disease, as well as additional potential in hemophilia, infectious and metabolic diseases. Dr. Epstein is also an executive partner at Flagship Pioneering, which founded Rubius Therapeutics in 2014. He's also previously served as the CEO of Novartis Pharmaceuticals. To date, Rubius has successfully engineered and manufactured red cells that express therapeutic proteins for the use in the treatment of serious diseases. The company is now demonstrating that these newly equipped, high-performing, off-the-shelf red cell therapeutics have preclinical activity across a spectrum of medical applications. For that purpose, Rubius has generated more than 200 prototypes. Dr. Epstein was one of the first to identify the potential of chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR T-cell therapy, which led Novartis Pharmaceuticals to leverage the technology. In time, his team's efforts resulted in a breakthrough product for pediatric and young adult acute lymphoblastic leukemia and potentially other cancers. Following his experience with CAR-T cell therapy, Dr. Epstein assessed many technology platforms looking for an elegant way to take cellular therapy to the next level, which has now led to the unique potential of the Rubius Red Cell Therapeutics platform to address many diseases for which no adequate treatment exists. When compared with most other cell therapy platforms, RCTs have broader application for a wider range of molecular targets. Moreover, RCTs can be produced at scale and stored in advance, allowing physicians to treat larger patient populations with an immediately accessible therapeutic option. After the break, we're back with Dr. Epstein. Dr. Epstein, welcome to the Younger Team Brief. Uh, you're the executive chairman of uh, Rubius Therapeutics, and, and it's uh, Rubius Therapeutics you're hoping to pioneer the next generation of cell therapy by creating uh, engineered allergenic red cells, or so-called super blood, in order to develop a new class of therapeutic drugs. Tell us a little bit about the company, uh, about the, the drugs that you're trying to do, uh, and basically what you're trying to achieve. It's, it's my pleasure to explain a little bit about our science and what it's going to mean for, for patients in j- just a few years. I mean, in short, Rubius Therapeutics is focused on just one thing. It's the creation of what we would call a transformative class of ready-to-use cellular therapy to treat a fairly wide variety of, of severe diseases. Uh, I think you know uh, recently there was an approval for the first uh, living T-cell therapy. Uh, and, and like T cells, red cells are cellular therapy, but have, uh, we believe, a multitude of advantages. For example, uh, these products are, as you said, uh, they are uh, allogeneic. In other words, we can grow them in, in large quantities and they can be ready for the doctor to use on the same day that he or she wants to prescribe them, unlike the T cell therapies where it takes actually several weeks from the time uh, the patient gives a sample, it's processed in the factory, and comes back to the patient. And it's really important because 
for many of these patients, having access to their treatment quickly really will be a difference between life and death. Uh, in addition, red cells don't re require uh, bone marrow to be what they call ablated or prepared uh, to receive the cells. Uh, you we also don't need, once, those, once the red cells are injected uh, into the patient, uh, they're going to have a long circulating uh, time of, say, three to four months. They don't need to expand or engraft like T-cells. So a lot of the risks of, uh, of T-cell therapy don't apply uh, for red cells. And then the other really, really cool thing about red cell uh, cellular therapy is, is that we can design them um, so that they can express uh, and, and go after uh, multiple targets in the body uh, and, and, and deliver uh, therapeutic uh, benefits, either because we put uh, an extra protein on this so-called super blood on the surface of the red cell, or because we put the uh, protein on the inside of the red cell uh, which allows that uh, protein then to be protected uh, from the, the patient's immune system. So, I mean, the short version is we, we want to build upon uh, the shoulders of giants with the initial T-cell therapies, but now bring uh, the patient something that's going to be much easier to use, uh, going to be uh, a product that can be available when they need it uh, across a, a fairly wide variety of diseases. So, if you compare, and you were alluding to um, so the, the, this, this, the new drug that actually was uh, released earlier today, uh, the, the drug by um, um, Novartis CTL-019, um, how, how is the direct comparison between those therapies, to what you, the one that you're developing, and, and this uh, drug? I mean, what are some of the key differences? You're, you, you mentioned some of that, but what are some of the other key differences there? And I'm happy to. So, as you as you uh, may know, I know CTL-019 quite well. Uh, in my previous role, I was head of Novartis's uh, pharma business globally, and uh, I, along with two other individuals, a fellow named Irve Opino, who's currently the CEO of Insight, and Manny Lichman, who's currently the CEO of, of another Boston-based biotech, uh, we licensed in that that uh, what they call CAR therapy, C-A-R-T. Uh, from the University of Pennsylvania because we saw the life-saving uh, potential of, of the therapy. So I know it quite well. And I'm really thrilled to see uh, that that original decision to bring it into Novartis is validated and that uh, the FDA has acted uh, so quickly in the approval, uh, giving patients access to the, this life-saving therapy. Having said all that, uh, I believe the first therapies that are coming out of both Novartis and soon to come out of Kite are what you would call, let's say, first-generation uh, cellular therapies or first-generation cars. Uh, there are many things that can be done uh, with future generations that can provide a lot more benefits. And, and some of the differences I alluded to before, but with a red cell, uh, because we can put uh, really uh, any protein we would like on the surface or inside the cell, we can then target many, many different kinds of cancers, we can also deliver enzyme replacement therapy, and we can also quiet down the immune system and treat uh, diseases like, like diabetes. The T-cell therapies are much more limited in terms of what uh, they can target. The first ones are targeting something called CD19, uh, which is providing benefit in ALL, in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, uh, and there'll probably be a few other hematologic uh, cancers. Second, uh, red cells can be stored 
uh, at refrigerated temperatures, which means uh, the doctor or hospital can have them in the refrigerator and use them the same day they decide they need them for the patient. Unlike the T-cell therapies that take, you know, two to three weeks uh, between uh, diagnosis and actually having a specifically tailored therapy back uh, at the hospital for those patients. Red cells don't need uh, the same type of pretreatments that you need for, for T-cells, such as uh, ablating the bone marrow. Uh, and uh, there are a multitude of other advantages. In, in many ways, uh, you know, red cells probably should have come first in a way because uh, it makes so much sense that the red, the red cell uh, would be the ideal way to, uh, uh, to express these proteins and target disease. The challenge was it wasn't until very recently that anybody could uh, actually uh, create a red cell in the laboratory uh, by essentially coaxing uh, progenitor cells and turning them into red blood cells. It's only with that technology combined with the gene, the gene modification tools that we all know, whether it be lentivirus or messenger RNA, uh, that we're able to now put those two different technologies together and all of a sudden have a very easy to use uh, a therapy across a variety of diseases. Now, what you, you refer to uh, in, in the information that we, we received about a universal donor. I mean, um, allowing that you can start with people in the population, but really don't have to look at some of the specific details. Can you, can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so, so essentially what we do is um, uh, with health, healthy, uh, uh, healthy people, healthy volunteers, uh, we have them come into a clinic and um, uh, we take uh, a sample of their blood. And what we do is we sort out of their blood um, uh, CD34 positive stem cells. And these are patients that have O negative blood, so these are universal uh, donor patients. Uh, we then take those CD34 positive cells, this is a very simple procedure, and then we coax those cells in our laboratory uh, to grow and expand. Uh, we add uh, uh, the selected protein either to the surface or the cytosol. We grow the cells some more, clean it up, and now you have a therapeutic agent in the form of a, a reticulocyte uh, that can, as I said, uh, treat a variety of diseases. So, looking at some of the uh, specific diseases that you're looking uh, looking at to to uh, work with, it, it goes beyond oncology. You mentioned earlier. Yeah, so there there are uh, a multitude of possibilities. That's actually one of the Rubius Therapeutics challenges. Um, we've seen we've made over uh, 250 of these different uh, red cell therapeutics at this point, and now we're at the critical stage where we have to choose. Uh, which ones go into the clinic initially and which ones maybe go into the clinic uh, down the road. As a relatively small enterprise, we can't do everything ourselves. Uh, the places I am most intrigued are uh, in three areas. Uh, one is the ability to treat patients with enzyme deficiencies. Right now, uh, to do so, you usually have to inject that replacement enzyme into, into the patient it's used, those enzymes don't circulate for very long. Patients often have immune responses to those enzymes, meaning that they won't work uh, in the future. Uh, and uh, the cost of those medications is often prohibitively high. Uh, 
by putting uh, the enzyme inside the red cell, for example, in the, exa in the example of an enzyme that would break down excess phenylalanine in the blood to treat a disease called uh, PKU, uh, there's a real opportunity uh, to every three to four months give the patient a small injection of, say, 20 to 30 mLs of modified red blood cells and bring their disease uh, completely into control. So that, that's one area. And there's probably a dozen or so of these enzyme deficiency diseases that red cells are in many ways ideally suited uh, to treat. Now the second area is in the field of oncology. Uh, since we can put uh, most um, antigens and proteins on the surface of these red cells, we can then use them to target uh, and kill cancer cells directly or to stimulate T cells as is commonly being tried now uh, in the clinic with a variety of, a variety of companies. This idea of using, fully utilizing uh, the human immune system to help uh, combat cancer. So we have a variety of different uh, cells that have been designed uh, that target checkpoint proteins like PD-1, PD-L1, but also uh, T-cell stimulatory proteins like 4-IBB and others, uh, which will activate the T-cell in the tumor micro uh, environment. And you can do this all with one red cell, which is really the cool part, because the red cell can express literally hundreds of thousands of copies of the protein. And as a result, we can make them multi-targeting, multi-stimulatory, all in one all in, in one treatment. So that's oncology. And then the third area, uh, and the third area is uh, the area of autoimmune disease, where we have learned, it's very exciting from the animal experiments, we have learned that if we put an antigen on the surface of the red cell, the antigen that might cause a disease, for example, like celiac disease or diabetes or multiple sclerosis, if we put that same antigen on the red cell, when the red cell presents that antigen to the, to the immune system, uh, what happens is the patients become uh, a tolerant to the antigen and the disease process stops. Uh, so we have uh, good animal studies now showing, for example, that we can prevent uh, diabetes, that we can actually actively treat multiple sclerosis and other autoimmune diseases. So it's sort of these three big categories for us. Well well, that's really exciting to, to look at. Now, going back to oncology, for example, I mean, over the last uh, decades, I mean, uh, we've seen major changes in, in, in the drugs that came available. Uh, we've uh, seen uh, much more targeted approaches, uh, which, of, of course, this is one of them. Um, is it fair to say that uh, the approach that doctors take um, when it comes to cancer um, is now more of uh, a, a, a creating it into a chronic disease rather than a deadly disease um, and, and being able to kind of really target the, the things that give people that, that extra survival benefits uh, to some extent? I think that's fair in, in part. So I've been involved in the development of more than a dozen different cancer drugs uh, while working at Novartis, and, and some of them are quite well-known, products like Levec and Tisigna for chronic myeloid leukemia, Finitor for the treatment of breast cancer, uh, uh, Jacobi for the treatment of a uh, variety of, of blood disorders. Uh, I, I would say that many of the, the current drugs indeed do uh, suppress uh, 
a, a aberrant protein in the cancer. As a result, patients can live normal or near normal lives uh, with uh, with uh, the the, tum the tumor still in them or the or the cancer cells still in them. But with the event of immuno-oncology in combination with some of either the targeted therapies or uh, in combination with the old chemotherapies, there's actually a real chance of cure, uh, maybe not for everybody, but for a, for a good number of these patients. So it's, it's bringing the targeted agents with an activated immune system together that's getting people uh, really quite excited. Okay, and so I want to get back to the conversation about CAR T-cell therapy. And as you mentioned earlier, big news came earlier this week when the FDA approved the immunotherapy drug CTL-019, or Chimaira, and this is for the treatment of childhood acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And again, you were actually one of the first to identify the potential of the CAR T-cell therapy before you joined Rubius when you were at Norvartis Pharmaceuticals. And you really led the efforts to leverage the technology that led to the treatment. So can you tell us a bit more about this and the impact that it's going to have on patients? Yes, I think um, this is one of the, the approval of Chimera is one of the most exciting things to happen in oncology in, in quite a number of years. Uh, in many ways, one should think of it as opening the door to a, a broad, wide field of future cellular therapies. For the patients with um, CD19-driven disease, in particular pediatric uh, ALL, uh, this product has been shown to be extraordinarily effective. Uh, patients who had failed three, four, five previous lines of chemotherapy, had failed bone marrow transplants, are put into complete remission uh, with this product. And there are several patients in the early trials that are now alive uh, quite a number of years with no, no evidence of disease. It doesn't work for everybody, but it seems like the vast majority get a, a really uh, excellent response. But just as importantly, uh, I think it's the possibility now that FDA has approved the first cellular therapy to now treat other cancers, autoimmune diseases, uh, and, and diseases even beyond, because now we understand what's required um, for FDA approval. We understood what's needed in order to manufacture uh, these products in a repeatable way uh, with, you know, with, with good quality. And as a result of these, this initial approval, I believe uh, a lot more money will flow into the field. Both big, big drug companies uh, will make investments. Big, big drug companies will buy some of these cellular therapy companies. The uh, Gilead acquisition is one example. But in addition, uh, more venture capital money will move into early stage companies that are working on the second, third, and fourth generation products, uh, which are likely to be uh, even better uh, than, than, than the first products that, that are now being approved. And so this drug is really unique because it's customized for each patient. But what are some of the logistical issues that you may expect are going to come up because of this? Yeah, so in fact, um, the logistics is perhaps uh, the greatest challenge and in part uh, will differentiate the companies that are successful in this field and those that are less successful. Uh, in, in short, just as a little tutorial, uh, once the doctor has made a, a decision that he would like to treat a patient, 
with what they call an autologous T-cell therapy like Chimera, uh, he has to, um, he has to uh, work that patient up. Uh, he has to uh, take, take a, a sample from the patient. They call that an apheresis. That product has to then be delivered uh, to uh, a factory, in the case of the Novartis product, a factory in Mars Plains, New Jersey. And then the processing needs to occur, which takes between uh, two and three weeks, and, that, and then the product has to be shipped back to the patient. This is not typical for most drugs where, uh, you know, the, the pill or maybe the injection is just sitting in the pharmacy waiting to be used, and a lot of things could potentially go wrong during this process. So tracking of the sample and the final product has to be uh, uh, very closely monitored. You can imagine if a patient is this ill, you can't afford, for example, for the sample to be lost. That just would not, uh, that would just not be acceptable. So anything that companies can do to uh, increase the service level, uh, to get to 100% you know, on-time processing and delivery, uh, all those things are going to matter. In addition, for these products to really work over the long term, when, when the product, when these T-cell products are injected, they need to expand and engraft inside uh, the patient. Um, I believe future cellular therapies won't require, won't require that step, and that's part of the reason that some of the future therapies like Ruby's red cell therapeutics may well ultimately have advantages over these first-generation products. So one of the other things that comes to mind with uh, the logistical issues that you refer to is obviously uh, that of cost. And uh, when you look at, for example, a few years ago when Gilead introduced Harvoni, um, there was a big outcry about people that really didn't understand uh, what was involved in, first of all, getting to that step where they had a fantastic drug that actually, in, this ca in, the, in, in the case of Gilead, uh, offered a, almost a guaranteed 98% cure within 9 to 12 weeks for hepatitis C. Um, I can only imagine that people looking at this uh, might say, hey, um, it's not cheap. Um, and, and how uh, does it, again, benefit patients and, and how is this affordable to some extent? Yeah. No, I think uh, it makes no sense to do science unless ultimately patients are able uh, to get the product and get the benefits of the product. And that means uh, that pricing and reimbursement need need to be uh, reasonable. Uh, ha having said all that, I would put Harvoni and Camria in, in very different buckets. Harvoni, which by the way is an excellent product, more or less it will eradicate hepatitis C, a really horrendous disease, uh, treats enormous numbers of patients. And I think it wasn't necessarily the price uh, for a course of therapy or the pill that was the real issue but it was ultimately the cost to the healthcare system of, of treating so many, uh, you know, very ill patients because of the large numbers of patients. Chimera uh, or Chimera, depending upon um, different pronunciations uh, of the product, um, it's quite different. It's a very targeted population. We're talking about just a few hundred patients. These patients are, um, if they don't get this, this product, will be getting other very, very expensive therapies. And I think there's a real opportunity, and if you look at the press, it looks like Novartis is acting on it, uh, to move the pricing model away from uh, everybody pays for their medicine, whether it works or not, to one where uh, they only pay if 
if the drug is active. You know, drugs are kind of a strange um, animal, so to speak. If, you know, if you were to go to the store and buy a product or go, maybe you go buy even buy a car, if it didn't work, you would bring it back and they would either fix it or they would uh, give you your money back. In the case of medicines, that's not the case. The medicine's consumed, it's paid for whether it works or not. So the extent that this drug maybe opens the door further to this idea of paying for outcomes or paying for success, I think that's a pretty good thing. The other thing you get to remember is that the, uh, you, you asked me the question about the supply chain earlier and the associated cost of goods. Uh, these are very expensive because they're customized for individual patients. They're very expensive products to manufacture. So you can imagine the manufacturers, at least in the first couple of years, are going to be losing money uh, on these products, even at the price, even at the price levels that are out there. I hope over time, if cellular therapies are, you know, instead of being used in hundreds of patients, or eventually used in tens of thousands of patients, then pricing uh, could come down. And I'll just leave you with one last thought. Um, you know, we got to remember that uh, for many of these patients, this will be a cure. It's the kind of product that's used only for most patients only once. Uh, many other cancer therapies are used chronically for life. So if you're paying $100,000 a year and you're using a drug for 10 years, um, you know, that's, that's a million dollar, that's a million dollar therapy. So one, uh, one time use of a T cell therapy could in some ways, I know it doesn't feel that way, but it can be looked at almost as a bargain compared to the cost of some other cancer therapies. Yeah, and I think it's important that you mentioned how CAR-T is taking a very unprecedented approach where the treatment may be one of the most expensive cancer treatments in the world, but if the patient doesn't benefit from it, there's no cost to the patient. So the efficiency of the drug is directly related to the cost of that treatment. Now, shifting gears a little bit, also making news this week is Gilead's acquisition of Kite Pharma. How do you think this is going to impact the industry from your perspective? Yeah, so, so Gilead's acquisition of Kite uh, provided yet further validation that cellular therapy is a, uh, a new um, plank, new pillar of medicine, and it's here to stay. Um, the fact that they paid um, uh, such a large premium to Kite's then uh, market cap uh, tells you that they see uh, future value in cellular therapy that goes beyond the initial product. Otherwise, uh, they would not have uh, paid that much money. And what it's going to do is it's going to give confidence uh, to others uh, to jump into the field. And when I say others, it may be uh, uh, venture capitalists. It may be other big pharma companies. They're going to look to see whether or not they should acquire one of the other existing public uh, cell therapy companies. Or what, what I would advise them to do is to, is to try to acquire one of the second or third generation companies that are looking to leapfrog uh, the first players. And then, excitingly, uh, on the front of scientists, you will find, and I saw this before with the introduction of, of Gleevec many years ago, you will find a lot of uh, young scientists, PhD students, who will now uh, dedicate their careers to cellular therapy, where they may not have done that in the past. So what you're doing is creating all multiple positive pushes uh, to uh, now ex really take uh, cellular therapy to the next level, exploit its advantages uh, for patients. I mean, ultimately, that's that's what money does, and that's what uh, Gilead has now done for the entire industry. So when we 
look at this week um, and last week and some of the exciting news that came out of uh, industry and about this clinic, um, we see that we really rapidly approaching uh, this, um, uh, this 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 concept of personalized medicine, uh, personalized medicine and targeted therapies in 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 way different ways than we actually um, have seen before. Uh, from your perspective, and also a little bit talking about your own company, um, what what's the limit? Yes. Yeah, so um, bringing together these two, in a way different concepts of uh, targeted therapy, and we've had targeted therapy now for more than a decade with a variety of different molecules that are targeting uh, different proteins in the human body, now putting together this idea that we can specifically personalize for an individual based either upon their own genetics or a sample of product um, uh, from the patient, it's, it's very exciting. It, it creates uh, new new possibilities that that uh, simply weren't there before. Just like in other industries where you have uh, the microchip and then the internet, and then all of a sudden you can have you know music online to carry with you. Those just were not possible until all those technologies were available. In many ways, as I look at Rubius's technology as just one example, uh, and the fact that these red cells can now be designed uh, through engineering to target or deliver uh, almost any protein, there isn't really much of a limit other than the fact that because these therapies are going to require to be injected, costs are likely to be higher than some of the older technologies, is that the limit is really at this point uh, focusing on patients with severe diseases that don't have other alternatives improving in the clinic that they actually work. And last but not least, as is the case with all new medical therapies, is just understanding to what extent there are long-term side effects uh, that perhaps are not envisioned now based upon you know, the short-term data that's, that's currently available. So I think we're at, we're at the very beginning. You can, you can say it's the uh, tip of the iceberg uh, to uh, finding out all the potential uses of cellular therapy. I think it's extraordinarily exciting. I think patients who never, who didn't have opportunities in the past to live normal lives are going to be given that opportunity. And, and that's why, you know, working in the pharma industry and the biotech industry is so, so personally rewarding uh, because in fact, you get to see the benefit of your work in such a meaningful way. And, and in that way, you'd definitely be able to give hope to uh, many patients that may never had hope in the first place. I fully agree. Pioneering the next generation of cellular therapy will meaningfully impact patients' lives. The interview you've just heard with Dr. David Epstein was originally recorded on September 1st, 2017. For more information about Rubius Therapeutics, visit their website at rubiustx.com. We know that based on this interview, you may have many questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. We'll post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncozine Brief.
Magazine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffman, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Uncuisine Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her 